These bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Now, whilst aspects of this prophecy may refer to the house of Israel, it does remind us that as we gather here, We gather to worship the one and in the presence of the one who can raise people from the dead. We gather here because of the one who rose from the dead himself. The one who says there is no situation beyond which he cannot bring life. There is no situation that has so little hope that he cannot intervene and bring hope back. And there are times in our lives when we feel down when we've been beaten, when all signs of hope seem to have gone. There are times when we feel physically, emotionally and spiritually exhausted. We feel dead. But our Lord God says, no, this is not how it will be. This is not how it will remain. Every situation that we are in, there is hope. There is nothing beyond the Lord's hand. There is nothing beyond his power and ability If he can breathe new life into dry bones, he can breathe new life into every situation. A God who can transform, a God who can resurrect, a God who brings hope for a better future. Not only when he returns, but here and now. So let us stand and worship our Lord, and we'll sing, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind.
Let us pray. Almighty God, living and active, as we gather in your presence, as we live by your Spirit, may we know your resurrection hope that began with your Son. May we see beyond the present to see what you see, to have our spirits encouraged by the hope of new life. May we see your hand at work in our lives today. May we rejoice to know that you are and continue to put all things right. May those of us here who feel defeated be given a reason to hope, the strength to continue, and the ability to see the joy past that which would steal our very life from us. Lord, we thank you for each and every blessing that has come our way. And may our hearts rise up in praise and adoration of you, and our minds respond with thoughts of you. May today be a day in which we can say this is the Lord's day, a day of peace, a day of restoration, a day of hope, as we all now pray together as your Son taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and give us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Find us in the power and glory.
I have a few things on the computer for the children to see, so I don't know if they want to come and sit a bit closer up. I will turn the computer around so that everyone else can see, too. I thought I'd start with the one that maybe lots of people have seen before. Do you want to come sit over here? or What can you see a picture of? You're saying a duck? You think a duck? Can anyone see a rabbit? Yeah, you can see the rabbit. Yeah, the rabbit's looking this way with his ears coming off over here. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've seen it before, maybe. No? Yeah, see the rabbit or the duck. It's funny how actually we can, look at, we can all look at the same thing, but sometimes see things differently. And that's part of what I want us to think about this morning. Now, simple question on this one, is that moving? You're saying no? Oh, Okay. Let me sit it still. It'd be better if it was not waving red. <laughs> Just look at it for a minute. You might find it easier if you came. You really don't want to move. No? Does it look like it's moving? It does. If we look at it, and I apologise, I couldn't do this on the big screen. Does it? Yeah. Now, when I looked at it last night, it made my eyes go quite funny. Okay? If you're wondering what we're looking at. It's one of these multicoloured things. Okay? And it kind of looks like it's moving around. You're not so convinced. I was going to find out, is anyone here colorblind? No? Because what I find with some of these, now this is maybe not the most convincing one, but does it change if I put this on top of it? What happens? It's not moving anymore, is it? Can you see, what do you think? Do you think it was moving? No. What do you think, guys? Does, does it look, can you see? Well, no, no. It's, the reality is it's not moving at all. It's, um, it's one of those things you look at it and it looks like it's moving and it's not. What about this one? You're not saying it moves at all? Are you? No, no. It's fine. But you're saying it is moving. I thought this one was a bit weirder. No? Do we think it's moving? I'm getting a few nods. Somebody said No. Okay. Well, I find with this one, my eyes got quite dizzy. But if I put a red blind on it, is it still moving now? Those of you that thought it was moving, is it stopped? Yeah, it stopped. It's funny. Now, obviously, I've missed my calling as an optician. But isn't it funny how what we're looking at changes depending what colour we look at through it? So you can see all the different colour spirals there. Yeah? Now, that's not moving at all. Don't think this is meant to move and it's not moving. None of them are moving. Does it look... How did, does it look different now? Yeah? What if I change and put a purple one on it? Hmm? It almost disappears, isn't it? What we see is really affected by what colour we look at things through. Okay? Now, are we all going to, is this one moving or not? Moving a bit. Okay. This is... Are we sure over here? Yes? No? Maybe when you're so far away. Yeah. Maybe I just spent too long looking at a computer screen that everything just... My eyes go funny. But again, if we put different colours on things, it changes, doesn't it? Now, the way we look at the world around us can be coloured. And it's not coloured because we're wearing coloured spectacles 
or because we've got filters on our eyes, but be coloured by what's in our hearts. So if in our hearts, we have, well, let's put it this way. If you ever speak to someone who's a thief, a thief spends all their life worried that other people are going to steal from them. And so they see everyone else as a thief, because if they were in that position, they would steal. So they're always worried that their things are going to get stolen from them. Likewise, if somebody lies, they learn not to trust anything that anyone else says, because if they're lying, they presume everyone else is lying too. Okay? And sometimes, if you don't like someone, everything they do is wrong. Yeah? Everything they do is just a pain in the backside. And even when they're trying to be nice, it irritates you. On the other hand, if you love someone, they can do no wrong. Everything they do is great. Yeah? You know, it's fantastic. And actually, if you love someone, you actually enjoy needing to do things for them because you think, oh, great, I get to do something for them. And these are little things that color how we see people. They color what we do. They change our perception of how we see the world around us. To give you one example from Scripture, in Mark 10, we read of a very rich young man who led a very righteous life who goes up to Jesus and says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes through all the commandments and he says, I keep all these. And so he says to the man, but there is one other thing you could do. Go and give all the riches you have away and give the money to the poor. And it's not that you could, he could buy favor of God, but he was faced with knowing what his heart was really like. What did he care most about? Was it keeping his money? Was it pleasing God? Or was it taking care of the poor? Sometimes we don't know what color we're looking at through the world at until we're faced with choices. Let us sing now. Um, Number 64, praise him.
first reading this morning is from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30. Luke 4, starting at verse 16. Then Jesus went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath, he went as usual to the synagogue. He stood up to read the scriptures and was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it's written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has chosen me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and announce that the time has come when the Lord will save his people. Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. All the people in the synagogue had their eyes fixed on him as he said to them, This passage of scripture has come true today, as you heard it being read. They were all well impressed with him and marvelled at the eloquent words that he spoke. They said, isn't he the son of Joseph? He said to them, I'm sure you will quote this proverb to me, doctor, heal yourself. You will also tell me to do here in my hometown the same things you heard were done in Capernaum. I tell you this, Jesus added, prophets are never welcomed in their hometown. Listen to me. Is it true that there were many widows in Israel during the time of Elijah, when there was no rain for three and a half years, and a severe famine spread throughout the whole land? Yet Elijah was not sent to anyone in Israel, but only to a widow living in Zarephath in the territory of Zidon. And there were many people suffering from a dreaded skin disease who lived in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha. Yet not one of them was healed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When the people in the synagogue heard this, they were filled with anger. They rose up, dragged Jesus out of town and took him to the top of the hill on which their town was built. They meant to throw him over the cliff, but he walked through the middle of the crowd and went his way. And our second reading is from 1 Kings, chapter 17, verses 8 to 24. 1 Kings 17, at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Now go to the town of Zarephath, near Sidon, and stay there. I have commanded a widow who lives there to feed you. So Elijah went to Zarephath, and as he came to the town gate, he saw a widow gathering firewood. Please bring me a drink of water, he said to her. And as she was going to get it, he called out, and please bring me some bread too. She answered, by the living Lord your God, I swear that I don't have any bread. All I have is a handful of flour in a bowl and a bit of olive oil in a jar. I came here to gather some firewood to take back home and prepare what little I have for my son and me. That will be our last meal. And then we will starve to death. Don't worry, Elijah said to her. Go on and prepare your meal. But first, make a small loaf from what you have and bring it to me. And then prepare the rest for you and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The bowl will not run out of flour or the jar run out of oil before the day that I, the Lord, send rain. The widow went and did as Elijah had told her, and all of them had enough food for many days. 
As the Lord had promised through Elijah, the bowl did not run out of flour, nor did the jar run out of oil. Sometime later, the widow's son got sick. He got worse and worse, and finally he died. She said to Elijah, Man of God, why did you do this to me? Did you come here to remind God of my sins and so cause my son's death? Give the boy to me, Elijah said. He took the boy from her arms, carried him upstairs to the room where he was staying and laid him on the bed. Then he prayed aloud, O Lord, my God, why have you done this terrible thing to this widow? She has been kind enough to take care of me, and now you kill her son. Then Elijah stretched himself out on the boy three times and prayed, O Lord, my God, restore this child to life. The Lord answered Elijah's prayer. The child started breathing again and revived. Elijah took the boy downstairs to his mother and said to her, Look, your son is alive. She answered, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the Lord really speaks through you. Father, may we hear your voice, may you speak to our hearts and to our minds, bring that which is relevant, you'd reinforce that which we know and show us something new. Be with the children also as they consider your word. We thank you Lord that you are able to speak to each and every one of us. Amen. A number of you will be aware that I'm a maths teacher by trade, that my day-to-day existence is torturing small children. Um, a number of years ago, I took a trip with some third and fourth years, and the idea was it was to encourage them to become engineers. It was put on because they were saying there's a shortage. Now, when we got there, the man had a really interesting tact. He decided to sell engineering as the way of making lots of money. Everything he did was all about how much cash you would have. Nothing about engineering itself. Every time he asked a question, he would pull out large amounts of money and wave them around. 
And if someone got a question right, he gave them five pounds. Now, it sounded, or it looked like, he had lots of money and he was being incredibly generous. In reality, I looked back and I thought, he's given away about 15 pounds altogether. He hasn't been anywhere near as generous as he thought. But it worked well with the children. They all went away thinking, oh, he must have loads of money. In fact, he's got so much, he just gives it away. What was disappointing is money wasn't a perk of being an engineer. It wasn't a means to an end. It was the end in itself. It was being put up almost as God's small g. The whole purpose of becoming an engineer was to make money. Those of us that are here, and of anyone with any worldly wisdom at all, will know that this is a bit of a false lie. If money had the ability to satisfy, then everyone that had enough money would be satisfied. And if they had any more, they'd quite happily give it away because they had enough. But I've never met anyone, no matter how wealthy they are, who thought, I have enough. I don't need any more. I'm not saying they don't exist. But we do live in a society that seems to think the answer to what we need is to have more. It's not the only God with a small g that society seems to be fixated with, that seems to promise so much and deliver so little. Not just money, pleasure, physical pleasure, status, possessions, Apple Mac. There are so many different things that we must have. They all promise us so much, but they don't quite deliver. When Jesus went home after being tempted in the wilderness, having been faced with the temptations of wealth, of power, of status, he stood up in the temple. Uh, No, sorry, he stood up in his synagogue, in his hometown of Nazareth. He was now old enough, and they brought the scroll to him to read. This was a tremendous honor. And the message Jesus read was a very good one from Isaiah 61. Good news to the poor. Healing for the brokenhearted, sight for the blind, freedom for prisoners, liberation for the oppressed. They all marveled. They thought this was wonderful. They thought this was amazing. This was great. They might not have done anything differently than they had done before, but they enjoyed what they were hearing. And if Jesus had stopped there, they would have been quite happy. What Jesus had declared was a jubilee. A jubilee was meant to happen every 50 years. It was like a giant reset button. Every 50 years, anyone who had gained property was meant to give that property back to whoever it come from. Anyone who had got Israeli slaves, Hebrew slaves, was meant to let them go free. Anyone that had any debts, these debts were written off. And this was meant to happen every 50 years. The idea being, of course, that the land was the Lord's. And so, therefore, it was for him to give the land to whom he wished. And therefore, the land was to be returned to those whom the Lord had given it to. It was good news because if you were someone who had suffered and you were struggling, you knew there was coming a day when actually your struggles, your strife, your debts would come to an end. If you'd find yourself in a difficult situation, you'd ended up being so much in debt that you were now enslaved, 
There was a day coming when you were going to be set free. There was a day coming when your sins would be forgiven. There was a day coming when all would be restored to how the Lord had intended it to be when, in the first place. Good news for the poor. Not so much good news for those that had spent 50 years accumulating as much as they could. Who'd built out a mighty household with lots of slaves in it. Not so much good news for them because they were expected to give it all back. If someone owed you something, you were expected to write it off. Just think for a minute how differently you would live your life if you knew that every 50 years, everything would be restored back to what it was 50 years earlier. In terms of land, property, possessions, status, and so on. When we think of it in practical terms, then we face some of the old arguments that we hear in the politics so often. Is that, but wouldn't that encourage laziness on some people's part? Surely if Jubilee's coming, then people are just going to be squandering what they have because they know they'll get it back. And why should someone who's worked so hard for 50 years and be so careful for 50 years give back what they've gained to somebody that was careless? Of course, underlying these arguments is sometimes a presumption that people are poor because they ought to be poor and people are rich because they deserve it. But when we think of this in a physical, practical, everyday situation, it does make us wonder where we're putting our efforts. In some ways, it discouraged a class system forming. It did away with the idea that the aim of life was to gain as much possession as possible. Ultimately, it meant that all things were God's and they remained God's to do with as he wished. But every 50 years, not only was property restored, but relationships were restored, people were restored. It couldn't help but have a spiritual consequence. But there was something about this jubilee that had its limitations. The Jubilee was only meant for Israelis, for the people of God, for those that counted themselves as in, one of God's chosen people. If you were a slave but from a different nation, it didn't matter. They would remain enslaved. If somebody from a different nation owed you debts, they continued to owe you debts. It only counted for those who were part of the nation. Is that why, within a few short words, the people that were listening to Jesus went from being quite excited about what they were hearing to being quite angry to the extent they wanted to kill him? Because he goes on to say that in the days of Elijah there were many widows, but Elijah went to Zarephath, which would be in modern-day Lebanon. That there were many lepers, but the leper that was healed was Naaman, a Syrian. This challenge that it isn't who's in and who's out. But that the graciousness of God, the generosity of God, extends the borders. That is outside just those that would call his own people. And I think we should always consider carefully, what do we mean by those who we call God's people and those who aren't? Is that a fair definition at all?
But before we go further, let's consider this widow in Zarephath. In this passage in 1 Kings, there are three stories. There is the story of Elijah, the man who was just like us, according to James. And yet, when he prayed for it to stop raining, it stopped raining. A man that God trained and raised up. A man who spoke to kings, a man who spoke in front of a whole nation. As Christians, often our focus is on being like Elijah. Someone who God trained by on his own and then took to the widow of Zarephath. But that isn't where the focus is when Jesus speaks. It's on the widow. So let us think about this widow. A widow in Zarephath. She has no husband. Which might not seem so strange, but in that society, in a society where there is no social welfare, but also where to have a voice, to have a position in society, you needed a man. She had no voice in the marketplace. She had no relevance to many around her. She had no way of guaranteeing an income. In her own town, she was insignificant and irrelevant and voiceless. She's doing what she can to keep her son alive. And one day, she's got to the stage where she's lost all hope. There is nothing to be gained. She will cook one last meal and then her and her son will just starve to death. And as she's out collecting sticks, this Israeli, who she recognizes as such, calls out to her and says, can I have a cup of water? Now, hospitality dictates that she would be expected to get him a cup of water, especially if he was a stranger to the town. I mean, after all, he may not know where the well is. There was a drought on, but she obviously knew where she could get him some water, so she goes to do so. But as she's going, he calls after her again. Oh, and can I have a bit of bread as well, please? Now, normally, a bit of bread the size of your hand, who would deny anyone such, such a thing? But she has nothing not even the bread. And she explains to him, and she swears by his God, trying to get him to realize how sincere she is. It's not her God, but she recognizes the God that he would worship. She has nothing. Her and her son are expected to die after they've eaten this last meal. And his response is not what you'd expect. It's, he believes her. But he goes on to say, well, go and do what you were going to do, but feed me first. He's probably thinking, how arrogant. He then makes a promise. He says, and if you do this, then the water and the oil and the flour will not run out until the rain returns. She does as he asks, which would have taken a few hours. And we don't know if she did it either because God had convicted her and she was unaware of it, or maybe she'd just become so depressed, so loss of hope, she thought, Do you know, if I split this three ways and I split it two ways, it makes no difference. I have nothing left. But she does it. And Elijah comes and lives with her. Elijah comes and stays with her for about two years. It's curious that Elijah is relying on the woman. Elijah, who is the man of God, is being provided for through the woman. Or... 
is the woman being provided for by Elijah? You may reject the question. The woman obviously thought that God was looking after her because of Elijah. It couldn't have been because of her. And we hear this when her son dies. Her son, the only hope she had left. For when her son came of age, then he would again give a voice to the family. He would again be able to work and earn money and restore some sort of respectability. He would be able to look after her in old age. All her hope was in her son. And then her son died. Two years wasted. It would have been better if he'd just died two years earlier, for after all, the inevitable has happened. He has died. And she cries out, she says, is it because of my sin that you have brought this upon me? I don't believe her sin was so great that it merited her son dying. And I think there's been much speculation about what her sin might have been. And I think it says more about people's attitudes to women than it does about what might have happened. But if you've spoken to anyone that is in a desperate situation, they blame themselves. This must be my fault. It must be because I haven't been good enough. It must be because... And you pick on the daftest things. When all hope is gone, the last person to blame is yourself. This woman believes it's all her fault. Elijah takes her son upstairs, lies on the son three times and prays and cries out to God, and God restores life to the son. He brings the son back downstairs living, at which point the woman... The joy, the hope that's been restored because of her son being resurrected, the life that's come back into the family. Now she knows that Elijah's God and what Elijah says is true. All hope has been returned because of a resurrected son. In some ways, this is a brilliant story because we can all say we have hope because of a resurrected son. That because of the erected son, those that are insignificant and voiceless have a voice. Those that have no purpose feel they have a purpose. This woman who was not seeking God was found by God. This woman who was being overlooked by everyone in her society was not passed by by God. This woman, who was not seeking to earn God's favor, received God's blessing we have the perfect picture of grace. It challenges our idea when we say grace is something you do not earn. And then we seem to think grace only belongs to us that are inside, that are of God's people. If grace is a free gift, then grace is given by God upon whom he chooses. If grace is unearned, then it really is unearned. Maybe this is why the people in Nazareth wanted to, to kill Jesus, because he was suggesting that their faithfulness and everything else counted for nothing, because God was going to be gracious and generous anyway. In many ways, we are those from outside of Israel that have come into the body of Christ through the resurrected Son. But there is a third story here. And it's the one between God and the nations and the one why they were really in this situation in the first place. 
See, we know about Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel, who was from Zarephath herself, and their worship of these false idols. Those that were meant to be taking care of the people, those that were meant to be looking after the people, had become distracted and were seeking after their own pleasures and their own lusts. They were following a false system, one that didn't deliver. But as long as they themselves were kept happy, they were okay. This is where our society can relate. Because we may not worship gods of stone anymore, but we live in a society where to have a voice, you need to have status and wealth and money. To have worth, you need to gain things. To be living life means seeking after pleasure. There is much in this world that we are told we should be striving after. The modern gods. The gods that distract us from each other. The gods that put ourselves in the center. And if you aren't able to take part, if you don't have the ability to get involved, then you're insignificant. Companies will be quite honest. They don't run companies anymore to deliver a good service. They run their companies to make a profit. And if you can deliver a profit, they're interested in you. If you can't, they won't. Government structures and other such things. There are many in our society who feel voiceless, irrelevant, overlooked, ignored, and hopeless. Maybe we could see ourselves as the Elijahs going into these places and bringing hope. But notice that Elijah's relationship with Sarapheth is that he was reliant on her, not the other way around. Maybe we should consider ourselves as Christians to be like Christ. To be as the resurrected son. The one we desire to be like. The one that stood up and said Jubilee is coming. The day is coming when all will be restored. When everything will be as God meant it to be. Not just rearranged, but made new. And God is not just coming for those that call them his. And that the riches of God's kingdom are far greater than all we can imagine. But if our voice is to be heard, if our voice is to be believed, then we need to go back to our earlier question. If we are going to declare that Jubilee is coming, how does that change the way we live our lives? Or are our lives still caught up chasing after the same false gods that everyone else is? Or are we living knowing that the Jubilee is coming? Except Jesus didn't say Jubilee is coming. He said the Jubilee is here. Let us continue in our worship of the Lord and sing number 79. Lord, you have come to the lakeside.
The prayers for others this morning are taken from the We Worship Book, the resource of the Wild Resource Group. And the response to Lord hear us is Lord graciously hear us. Let us pray. Lord hear us. Lord graciously hear us. For the healing of bodies we pray, for a holy healing, which deals with both pain and its causes. For healing which leads to a new love for the body, a new care for the body, and also where mortal life wearies for the end, for the healing of death. Lord, hear us. Lord, graciously hear us. For the healing of minds, we pray. For a holy healing which deals with memories as well as madness, abuse as well as anxiety, depression as well as dementia, stigma as well as the suffering of a tortured mind, and also where people have been hurt by religion, for the healing of faith. Lord, hear us. Lord, graciously hear us. For the healing of relationships, we pray. For a holy healing which will not make things nice, but will make things possible for the mending of love for the mending of love which has been fractured, for the cherishing of those whose true selves have been deemed apparent, and for the holding in brokenness of those for who, for the holding in brokenness of those for whom love has been undermined by deceit. Lord hear us. Lord graciously hear us. For the healing of our world, we pray. For a holy healing. For the tearing down of cruel barriers and the building of bridges for peace. For the ending of needless exploitation and the growth of reverence for our planet. For replacing what the wealthy want with an abundance of what the world really needs. Lord, hear us. So we pray, we trust, and we will do, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for the ability to serve, to bring hope, to meet people's needs. Thank you, Lord, for the work you're doing here in Hull Head, seen and unseen. And in gratitude, we offer you this financial offering to be used as you guide your servants for your will and purpose. May you bless this offering and also for those for whom it is intended. Amen. Let us continue our worship and sing number 131, Through the Love of God our Saviour. the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever